So it's the summer of 1967. In the suffocating and oppressive heat of central Mississippi, And J. Edgar Hoover has just ordered his top FBI agents to hunt down, track, and capture the most dangerous man in America, the Mad Dog, Thomas Terrence III. Thomas was a Ku Klux Klan member of the notorious White Knights who had orchestrated several bombings in Jewish synagogues and people's homes. Under the mentorship of Sam Bowers, who murdered three civil rights activists, Terrence was involved in the bombings of over 30 Jewish synagogues, black churches, and homes. He was the Mad Dog of Mississippi. And the hunt for the Mad Dog ended the following summer, as Terrence was involved in a car chase. He ended up being shot four times, but lived, but his female accomplice died. Terrence was sent to 30 years in prison in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, where he escaped, and then once he was apprehended, he would spend the next three years of his life in solitary confinement. He would spend those years continuing to fuel his hatred by reading Mein Kampf. And when he was exposed to the general population, he would find those people who had the same ideologies and hateful beliefs that he did. Until one day he was handed a Bible and he started reading it. And as he said, it was like the light came on for him. He gave his life to Christ promised to serve the greater world. And he began untangling himself from those hateful ideologies, those vicious and toxic notions of racism and anti-Semitism. He was liberated from that through the grace of Jesus. And as it turns out, that one of the FBI agents who was... uh, Uh, responsible for his capture years before, had been praying for his salvation and a change of his heart and his mind every day for two years. And that FBI agent and his wife, alongside of the victims that Terrence had bombed, they were all instrumental in advocating for his release from prison eight years later. And then once he was released from prison, he met John Perkins, a black evangelical church leader who had a similar story as his younger brother was shot and killed by a hateful group as well. But together, Terrence and Perkins began to understand each other, began to love each other. And they also began to change and transform their community, to bring about racial reconciliation, especially to ensure the desegregation of schools. Now, something that had gone into effect nearly two decades prior to this, but the local communities still refused to embrace it. But with the help of civil rights activists and former KKK members, 
desegregation and full inclusion was guaranteed because of the work of Terrence and Perkins. Sometimes yielding to God's will is difficult. And in fact, it can be downright painful, but in the end, it always brings about peace. And so I bring that story up because I think it's sort of a modern day story of Pentecost, of what the church celebrates, that there's this holy joining of people who have long since been separated and segregated, that they're now brought together, united in the love of Christ to become agents of peace and reconciliation for the rest of the world. Pentecost is the day that that we celebrate that God created the church. And you may have heard this story before from Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the early followers of Jesus and they begin preaching in all these other different languages, proclaiming the good news about who Jesus is to the rest of the world. And all of these Jewish people, uh, they agree to commit their lives to following Christ. They're baptized and the church becomes the church. Diverse, imperfect, but holy. That first Pentecost was about overcoming a language barrier, but the Holy Spirit wasn't done with the church yet. And the Holy Spirit isn't done with us yet. That for years and years and years to come, and you can read about it in chapter after chapter after chapter of the book of Acts, that there's still more barriers to overcome. You see, one of the biggest issues for the early church that they had to wrestle with was was the issue of inclusion. Who's in, who's out? Was this good news of Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, was was it just to be shared with the Jewish people? What, What do we do about the Gentiles? What do we do about people who have a different language, different culture, different ethnicities, different races, people who are just different from us? And afterwards, Jesus's final words before he left this earth were, go into all the world, making disciples. But when you do that, there becomes a natural tension that as you go out into all the world and meet all of the people, the question then begins to come, well, we can go into all the world, but but are we really all in this thing together? And it has continued to be an issue for the church that we wrestle with today. That we've come a long way as a church, but we've, we've still maintained a lot of barriers. We've, we've still held a lot of people kind of at arm's length. And so what we must do, what we must do, if we are still people of Pentecost, what we must do is we must submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit to have our minds transformed, to retrain the eyes of the heart so that we can see the world the way that God sees the world. And so I'm reminded of these words from the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church in Corinth. And he says this in chapter five. It says, for Christ's love compels us, compels us, but we, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, 
in light of the resurrection, from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, it's you and me, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us, to us, the message of reconciliation. And there's that one line in there that, that just caught me so off guard. He says, so from now on, in light of the resurrection, in light of all that Christ has done for us, so from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. And that's what inspired this sermon series on Vivid. They, they were trying to learn to see the world the way that God sees the world, to have our minds transformed, to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we could see the world vividly, not just in black and white or blurred or any of that, but so that we could see the world the way that Christ sees the world. Because when we encounter Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to work on our lives, totally changes our worldview. The Spirit begins to teach us to see as God sees. And when we begin to see the world as God sees the world, we inevitably begin to do differently within the world. And so let me take you to one of my favorite stories from the book of Acts, and it comes from Acts chapter 10. Uh, So this is after Jesus has ascended. This is after the Holy Spirit has fallen. The church is uh, created, the first church in Jerusalem. And Peter, the leader of this early church in Jerusalem, has been faithfully following Jesus' final command, going out into all the world to make disciples Except, except he hadn't gone out into the world of the Gentiles yet. Peter has done a great job telling his Jewish brothers and sisters about this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, whom he believed was the long-expected Messiah, the Son of God, all based on the fact that Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and then actually pulled it off that Peter had watched Jesus be crucified and buried, and then three days later, he had breakfast with him on the beach. And so after seeing that, you kind of have to admit that there's something special about this Jesus guy. But Peter hadn't gone to share this good news with his non-Jewish Gentile community yet. He was preaching to the people who are in the synagogues, but he hadn't gone to preach this good news to the people who are in the pagan temples yet. And so then one day, God comes to a mid-ranking Italian officer named Cornelius. Cornelius is an outsider in the eyes of Peter. He's, uh, He's a Roman, he's an officer, he's a Gentile. But Cornelius, is, he's a good guy. I mean, he's well-respected in the community. He's a man of deep prayer. He's a generous man giving extravagantly to the poor. And one day, while Cornelius is praying, an angel shows up to him and says, Cornelius, 
I've got some good news. But to hear about it, you have to go find this man, Peter. He's in the city of Joppa, so go and find him. Now, I know I started talking about Peter because the story is mostly about him, but it's interesting to note that God comes to Cornelius first. We're gonna get to Peter, but God comes to Cornelius first, this Gentile, this person who is outside of the community of God that the Spirit begins speaking to him first. So now let's see what happens with Peter. This is verse nine of chapter 10. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He was hungry. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Well, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. I've I've never even so much as tasted something that is not kosher. Now we as 21st century Christians, this might seem like a strange story to us because it really is, Um, but we might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why the four-footed animals and the reptiles and all that stuff? Like, Peter, there's, there's food there. Go, go get some shrimp, have yourself some carnitas. But dietary laws, dietary laws were a huge deal for Peter, a huge deal for uh, the ancient Jewish people, a huge deal for many of the Jewish people still today. That there's entire chapters in the Old Testament describing and listing what kind of foods you can and cannot eat because the dietary restrictions were set so that the Jewish people could be distinguished, set apart from the rest of the community. That they were supposed to live differently from the rest of the world and one really practical way that you do that is that you eat differently from everybody else. I mean, maybe you've experienced this before, but... When you don't eat the things that everybody else is eating, that's a very easy way to be uh, separated from those people. And so this is a little confusing for Peter. He's, he's, he's a little disoriented by this vision. Is this, is this God really speaking or is it just hunger pains? Is this, is this vision truly from God or what? And so Peter keeps on praying and it happens again. <laughs> The sheet is lowered down again with a buffet of unclean food and God tells Peter, get up and eat. No, no, Peter protests, I I can't do that. This, This can't be. And then it happens a third time. The Holy Spirit can be a little bit pushy sometimes, right? Especially when we're stubborn. And the voice says three times, if God says it's okay, then it's okay. But there's something within Peter that that nothing within him wants this. But it's completely the desire of God that's being pressed on to Peter's life. And he's hungry. And so God begins drawing Peter's desire to the very things that he once found repulsive. This goes against everything that that Peter had been taught. It goes against everything, the way that he had been conditioned to see the world. 
I mean, God had been pretty clear never to eat something that God has explicitly called unclean or impure. Peter's totally disoriented that suddenly all of those laws about what to eat and not to eat are now, what, they're just up for debate? And, and at the same time that Peter is having this vision, that God is working on Peter's desires, guess who comes knocking at the door? Cornelius. Cornelius's messengers. So it says this, verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, Peter, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I, God, have sent them to you. And they meet with Cornelius and they say, hey, our man Cornelius had this pretty crazy vision about an angel coming to him and the angel said, look, you gotta go and find Peter and see what he has to say. So, Peter, what do you have to say? I mean, the timing of this is just spectacular. God is always on time. And so Peter agrees to go and meet Cornelius and Cornelius tells Peter about this visit that he's had from the angel at the same time that Peter was having these vivid food dreams. And that's when the light went on for Peter. That he realizes that that the vision wasn't just about clean and unclean food, that that the vision was about people. That God accepts what we so often want to reject. And then it picks up here in verse 34. It says, then Peter began to speak to Cornelius and everybody else who is in the house. It says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God plays no favorites. That if you want to follow Jesus, then who am I to stop you from listening to the Spirit and doing so? And then there's this little mini Pentecost that takes place in Cornelius' house. The Spirit fills the room, they start speaking in tongues, and all of a sudden they're asking, Peter, can you baptize us? And Peter says, well, we've never done it before. We've never baptized a Gentile before, but sure, where's the water? Let's do this thing. Cultural taboos are overturned. Religious laws are turned upside down. All because, all because the Spirit spoke to two different groups and they both listened. That there is no more unclean or impure if Jesus is really Lord of all. And if Jesus is our Lord, and we confess that, then we have to be willing to follow his final command to go out into all the world to make disciples of him. And you know what we just might find along the way? We just might find that the spirit is already at work ahead of us, that the spirit is already moving in the lives of people that we didn't think the spirit could ever move in. And so, There's a whole lot that I could discuss 
about this story, but I know I don't have a whole lot of time left. And I know that it's not quite a fair discussion because I'm the one with a microphone, and so you all don't really get a part in this conversation. But we as the church, as God's one holy church, I don't think that we've quite gotten the memo from Acts chapter 10. I don't think that we've quite understood this passage. That we still want to wrestle with who's in and who's out. We've done it for centuries with different cultures. Done it with women, we've done it with minorities, and we continue to do it with our LGBTQ community. We need to do better. That as the Apostle Paul would say, that the love of Christ compels us to do better. I think that we've forgotten that we are a church that has been birthed at Pentecost and that we're a church still capable of having a Pentecost again. But, but we have to be willing to listen to the Spirit. We have to be willing to see the world the way that God sees the world and listen to the Spirit as God draws us out of our comfort zones and into all the world. Are we willing to do that? And so you might know, if you've listened to the news in the last couple months, that the global United Methodist Church who has been debating who gets to be included in our little tribe of church. And what I really love about the Methodist Church is that we try to make room for all. And we're a church that wrestles with the complexities of life, the complexities of this world. We're a church that deeply wrestles with the complexities of scripture. We challenge culture and we're willing to be challenged by culture because we believe that we do not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is also at work within the world. We're a church of the big tent of both and thinking, and we try not to fall into either or dichotomies. We try to make room for everyone as long as it is in keeping with the love of Christ. And as a church, we have affirmed that all people, all people are of sacred worth and value in the eyes of our God. That our God loves everyone regardless of race, class, ethnicity, language, and sexual orientation, all of that stuff, any other label that we want to try to attach to anyone, God shows no favoritism. God shows no partiality. And we are called to invite and encourage others to come and follow Jesus alongside of us as we wrestle with this thing together. But as a global church, as we have wrestled with scripture, as we have wrestled with one another, we have also decided to keep our LGBTQ brothers and sisters kind of at arm's length. And as a pastor of a United Methodist Church, I just can't stand for that. Because that's not the heart of God that I see. 
And I know I've wrestled with the scriptures and I know so many of you all have as well. I've given my life to making the church a place where all are welcome and included and can find the love and grace of God to liberate us from our own selves, to walk in forgiveness and truth and mercy. But I've also had too many Peter and Cornelius moments to continue to try to label people impure or unclean. I can't do it. And I know that that we're not all on the same mind on this thing, but as Christians, we're all called to have the same mindset of Jesus, emptying ourselves, humbling ourselves, seeking a better way, seeking the way of love beyond anything else. And so I'm not asking you to come and sit on the same side of the table that I sit on. I know that's foolish. But what I am asking What I am asking for us as a church is that we would come and sit at the same table together. Especially come and sit at the same table along with our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters who desire to share a meal with us. And so, this is just an announcement. I I invite you all that this Wednesday at 6.30 in this room, we're going to have a discussion about that, about who we are at First Dunedin, um, how we can uh, be and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world by loving and offering Christ to our gay brothers and sisters. We'll talk about what's going on in the global church, but, but really what changes the world is you and me and how we love our neighbor. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in the days to come, and and also in the weeks, the months, the years, that, that this is just what I would challenge all of us with. And this is what I continue to challenge my own self with as well. Because let's be honest, we, we all have prejudices We all have barriers, we all have pride, we all have hang-ups, we all have stuff that gets in the way from loving the people that are around us. We, We all have that. I'll be the first to admit it. And so what I would challenge us with is that we would take seriously this story, that we would go up to the rooftop like Peter and pray earnestly, honestly, openly, feverently, and invite an interruption into our lives. That we could see the world the way that God sees the world. That we could see the world colored with grace and love and beauty. That's my hope. And that's my challenge. Because we're a people of Pentecost. Least we forget it. We're a people who have borne out of the crucible of the fire of the Holy Spirit, constantly having our worldviews, our sins, our broken ways of thinking burned away and challenged so that at the end we could see the world the way that God sees the world and do what God calls us to do. Let's go to the rooftop together. Won't you pray with me? So Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that comforts us 
but also challenges us and calls us to a higher way. And so, Lord, give us the endurance to continue to wrestle with that. Give us the endurance and the strength to continue to wrestle with you, with one another. But God, also, you've promised that you've given us a spirit not of fear or timidity, but of love and self-discipline. So help us to put on love. Help us to seek the greater things, faith, hope, and above all else, love. Because that's what remains. Help us to lean into that. God, as we lean into it, may we show forth your love to the whole world. Set our hearts on fire with the love of your Holy Spirit that when people look at us and when people look at this church, they may be pointed to you to glorify you, God, in heaven. Give us courage to be your disciples. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.